Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Before we get started today, I want to talk about something we are doing this Saturday, a live read book club meeting this Saturday at the Flint Public Library, July 13th at 10 a.m. We want people from Detroit to take the ride up with us and meet up with us for the latest from Congressman Dan Kildee, journalist Jaquanda Johnson, and mom-termed activist Melissa Mays. We're going to talk about the book that we are reading as a community this summer, What the Eyes Don't See by Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, the pediatrician in Flint who first brought public attention, real public attention, to what was going on there with the water. Uh, this is our first uh, of the book club meetings, the official book club meetings this summer, and we would love if folks from Detroit would join us in Flint with the folks there to talk not just about the book and the water crisis, but about environmental issues more generally, about water infrastructure, about all of the things that affect our health and our environment. Again, you can join us Saturday, July 13th at 10 a.m. at the Flint Public Library. If you need more info, go to WDET.org slash events and we will see you there. Okay, up first today, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has been really busy lately from efforts to institute a ban on sexual relationships between clergy and parishioners to working on stopping energy providers from raising their rates to, of course, her ongoing quest to shut down Line 5, the oil and gas line that runs beneath the Straits of Mackinac. She joins us now for the first of what are going to be regular monthly check-ins here on Detroit Today. We're going to dig into some of these issues and find out what else she's working on. Dana, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me again, Stephen. I appreciate it. Sure. So let's start with uh, your ongoing investigation into clergy abuse throughout the state. What's happening around that? And why did you recently say you'd like to see all relationships between clergy and parishioners outlawed? Is that taking this a step uh, too far, maybe? Uh, well, I didn't say all relationships. I said all sexual relationships. Okay. Um, and, and the reason for that is as we get further and further on in our investigation, what we're seeing time and again is um, a, a particular type of exploitation where you'll have um, clergy members who, who sometimes seem to groom uh, individuals when they're when they're children or when they're teenagers, and um, as soon as they become uh, of legal age, they really use their position as um, as a spiritual counselor uh, to take advantage of people and to exploit them sexually. And we're seeing a lot of cases actually where some of the priests they're actually engaging in um, sex acts with uh, parishioners right in the confessional or right in the rectory during the course of spiritual counseling, and oftentimes telling them that this is their conduit to salvation, is this sex act. And um, personally, I find that to be appalling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have all kinds of regulations in place where, um, you know, doctors cannot have sexual relations with their patients, and lawyers cannot have sexual relations with their clients, and counselors or psychologists or psychiatrists cannot have um, sexual relationships with, um, you know, their patients because it's understood that, you know, that is, is not an equal relationship, you know, and it, it's a way to take advantage of somebody if you're going to exploit that relationship for sexual purposes. And we see it very much the same way. And the problem is, if the person is of age, 
uh, and there's not a, a physical kind of coercion, whereas, you know, somebody's not using physical force, they don't have a gun or a knife or some other weapon. Sure. We really can't charge those cases. But, you know, I, I, I find them to be coercive in a way that I do think it should be illegal for those types of, of sexual relationships to exist. And, you know, if people want to date their spiritual you know, counselor at their um, their church or their mosque or their synagogue or what have you. Um, you know, I, a dating relationship, I, I suppose, is fine, you know, and um, if there's no, you know, sexual um, component to it, and if those individuals get married, and that's one of the things in the what we're going to be proposing is if there's a marital relationship, I, I certainly don't think that... Um, you know, there should be uh, anything illegal about that. But when you're utilizing your role as a spiritual counsel uh, for the purposes of um, having sex with the person you're counseling, yeah, I do think that should be illegal. Uh, so so I, I wonder how you would draw these distinctions in the law, these things that you're talking about here. I mean, uh, the, the consent issue, I think, jumps to the fore here. An adult who decides to enter into a relationship with somebody who, uh, you know, has more power over them uh, th- th- than, than somebody else. Uh, how would you how would you how would you criminalize that? In other words, uh, th- if, if there is no objection from the, the person um, who's involved with their 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 minister or or their counselor, um, how would you draw that distinction? Well, I think by the very nature of that relationship, um, there is a the potential for exploitation. And, and again, that's why we say, for instance, when we say what the age of consent is, you know, you can't ever have a sexual relationship, an adult, uh, with somebody who's under the age of 16 in this state. Sure, sure. Even if they're, even, and what we say about that is, even if there's no force used, we say that there's a component to it um, where, by the very nature of that, um, it really calls into question whether it's true consent or not because of the age of the person. They're not really capable of consenting. Well, to me, you know, if you want to have a sexual relationship, for instance, with your priest or your rabbi or your imam or what have you, um, you know, simply go to another congregation uh, until the time, for instance, that you're married. We're not saying you can't have a relationship with that individual, but if you are in a position of providing spiritual counseling to them or religious counseling to them, um, the very nature of that really subjects itself to potential exploitation. And, and I, I, I'm saying this because we're seeing it over and over and over. I mean, these files that we're reviewing are rife with these kinds of cases and the and the people who are the congregants, I mean, we've talked to them time and time again, and they they say that they do feel very much victimized by that kind of behavior. And I can't tell you how many times the exact line is used. You know, if you want to get into heaven, the way to do that is by engaging in the sex act with yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, and, I don't think I don't think know, any anyone would have a question about the, the 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 clear cases of exploitation where somebody is manipulating somebody into these things. I think the question is, of course, the the, the consenting relationships, but also whether the law is. Uh, the way to deal with this. In other words, uh, you know, there are professional standards, uh, as you pointed out, in in many professions that prevent this kind of behavior. Isn't is that maybe a better way to deal with this than to criminalize it? Well, if you want to get into um, an area where you say that to be uh, a spiritual counselor, you have to be licensed, then that might be very helpful because hmm. if you could lose your license 
in order to act as a clergy member in the event that you violated the ethical uh, tenets of that, that might be another way to deal with it. And I'd be absolutely open to exploring that as well. But we have to do something about this situation because I can't believe how often it's happening. And um, it's really an absolute abuse of trust to somebody that should be helping you, not trying to have uh, sexual relations with you, you know? Mm. Uh, let's switch subjects here. According to your office, the three utility companies have filed for rate increases with the Michigan Public Service Commission. Talk about the scope of coverage provided by these companies and what you are doing in response to their request. You don't think they should just be able to do this? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and one of the reasons I ran for this office um, is because I, I was one of those people that could recall the uh, Frank Kelly years of, um, you know, when he was attorney general. Not all of his years, but many of them. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he was such a tenacious advocate um, for consumers when it came to, you know, ratepayers. And then what happened over the course of many years, especially having 16 years of Republicans in that office, um, is I saw that component of the AG's office sort of fall away. And I will say particularly for the eight years that Bill Schuette was the attorney general, he very, very rarely challenged these rate increases. And as a result, you saw these exorbitant rate increases in Michigan that were much higher than comparable Midwestern states for what you would expect to see for gas and electric and so forth. Um, so I was determined to fight as vigorously as possible against those sorts of rate increases. And we've been very successful. Uh, in the first six months uh, that I took office, we saved ratepayers in Michigan over $300 million. Um, and I just don't think that these utility companies should be able to raise their rates uh, exponentially the way they have in the past without a, a fight from uh, the attorney general to protect ratepayers. And, and these increases are substantial. Um, Semco wants to raise their rates 28 million. That's a 14% hike. Uh, Indiana, Michigan Power Company, um, you know, they're looking at a 25% rate increase to their customers. DTE is seeking $328 million uh, of an increase. That's a 9% increase to their customers. And I believe that they just received a substantial rate increase. And, um, you know, if I'm not going to be out there fighting as aggressively as I can on behalf of consumers in this state, you know, who will? I think that's part of my job. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Attorney General Dana Nessel. We're talking about the many different fronts in which uh, she's involved in trying to move the law in a different direction, perhaps, here in the state of Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. If you have a question for the Attorney General or an issue you want to discuss, this is your opportunity to do that. Uh, she will also be joining us uh, monthly, regularly, to talk about the work that she's doing. So this won't be your only chance to ask her uh, those questions. As always, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, before we go to the phones, uh, Dana, I want to talk about Line 5, uh, which continues to be uh, a, a source of real conflict, I think, in the state on a number of different fronts. You filed a, f a lawsuit uh, to shut down Line 5, and you also filed a motion to dismiss Enbridge's lawsuit that's seeking to enforce 
the agreements that were made with that organization in the last five months of the Snyder administration. This seems like uh, a, a real potential legal standoff, I guess, uh, over what, what happens here. Talk about uh, what you're doing and why. Well, firstly, in terms of the lawsuit um, that we're defending, that was a lawsuit that was brought by Enbridge against the state of Michigan. Um, And, you know, it has to do with Public Act 359, which uh, was rushed through the legislature during the lame duck session um, last December. And, um, you know, the first thing that Gretchen Whitmer did in office, and when I say the first thing, I mean, I had literally not been sworn in for even a minute when I was handed an envelope uh, from her staff. It was a very much, it was a Willy Wonka moment for me where I just, somebody slips me an envelope and it was a request for this uh, opinion. And um, after, you know, extensive research, um, my staff came to the conclusion that, um, you know, that particular um, piece of legislation that was you know, put together in such a hurried manner violated the um, title object clause in the Michigan Constitution. Uh, and as a result, the Mackinac Straits Corridor Authority um, legislation and all the subsequent uh, agreements uh, were null and void. And uh, as a result, you know, the governor ordered that all, you know, that my, my AG opinions uh, are binding on state agencies. And mm-hmm. so as a result, the governor ordered that um, her agencies, Eagle and DNR and all the affiliated agencies that would be involved in um, in the, the tunnel action, um, you know, would cease to permit Enbridge for that. Um, and so the, um, the tunnel construction, I mean, I, I know that there are things that they're still continuing to do pursuant to permits that they had already received, but any further permits have not been granted. Um, and my understanding, of course, is that negotiations have um, uh, not resumed with Enbridge. So that is at a standstill. Um, but, you know, Enbridge is suing uh, and they want to enforce that lame duck legislation. Mm-hmm. And so obviously we filed a motion to dismiss indicating that um, that legislation is null and void because it's unconstitutional. So there's that. But then there's a separate lawsuit um, that I filed at the same time that we uh, filed our response to the first lawsuit. And that's in the Ingham County Circuit Court. And um, we are asking that um you know, the courts, um, you know, declare a, a declaratory judgment um, on line five that um, due to a number of different concerns and considerations uh, that line five be decommissioned. Mm. So, so I, I'm curious if you think there is any opportunity to negotiate with Enbridge uh, a, a way to keep this line operational and safe. Or, or, or do you just really believe that uh, it, it has to be shut down? And if you do believe that, I guess, have you given much thought to, to what you would do or what Enbridge might do instead of sending that gas and oil through uh, through the line under the straits? Well, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the whole idea of the tunnel, the, the fact of the matter is I was asked as to whether or not um, this particular piece of legislation that was passed in December was constitutional or not. And as I indicated, I found that it wasn't. Um, you know, at any time, the governor and Enbridge are free to resume negotiations if they want to pass a new bill involving a, a tunnel that is not unconstitutional. Um, uh, you know, and that's, that's, their per, that's the governor's prerogative, you know. Um, I'm just there to enforce the laws. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, if, if they think that that is the best policy, and I, I assume that's something, of course, that would also have to be passed by the legislature, they're, they're free to do that. But my job as attorney general, of course, is to enforce the laws of, uh, of our state. And, um, you know, for reasons that I've talked extensively about, of course, uh, I believe that this, uh, that Line 5, the continued operation, um, it's, a, it's a public nuisance. It violates the Public Trust Doctrine. Um, you know, it, it violates the Michigan Environmental Protection Act. Uh, and that, you know, continued operations, um, you know, could very well result in, in a catastrophe that we've the likes of which we've never seen before in the state of Michigan. So that's why uh, I am working to shut down the 66-year-old pipeline that we know was never intended to operate this long in the first place. Uh, In terms of alternatives to it, you know, there are a myriad of different ways that the same types of of energy and same types of fuel or natural gas, propane, and what have you, can be easily transported around the state. And I know that right now the governor has a UP Energy Task Force. They're specifically analyzing, um, you know, the movement of propane to the UP to make sure there's no problem with that. And I will say that I did not request uh, injunctive relief um, uh, to a preliminary injunction. What I asked for uh, is that this be commissioned, decommissioned the line, uh, in a manner in which all parties um, would have the uh, ability to ensure that um, there were provisions in place so that we didn't have any energy shortages or issues of that nature. But, you know, Stephen, I do want to say one thing. Whenever Enbridge is out there um, spending tens of millions of dollars on propaganda on this, and remember, only 5 to 10% of everything that flows through Line 5 actually even goes to our state residents, um, you know, I hear about whatever the pot- potential is for rising energy costs. And those rising energy costs that they project, uh, even the worst case scenario, just the cases that I already talked about with you um, that, that we've mentioned where we've saved over $300 million just this year already to ratepayers, I mean, that's far in excess whatever potential increases there would be for fuel. So I am working very, very hard, very industriously and very aggressively to bring down the cost of energy in this state. And when I hear Republicans in particular complain, oh, well, this is going to cost consumers in this state. Well, where have they been the last 16 years as our rates have gone up and up and up? And we haven't had an attorney general who is willing to fight aggressively against um, the utilities. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important point that has to be made. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's get a quick call in here. Josh in Beverly Hills, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Hey. Um, I want to address this question of the earlier topic the Attorney General uh, was speaking to, which was the, the the free exercise of religion between a parishioner and his and her or his counselor or uh, spiritual counselor or priest. Um, I think the Attorney General probably recognizes that, that should probably a proposal like that would probably transgress the free exercise of religion protected under the Constitution, hmm. and that you'd be quickly be quashed by, by uh, more superior courts. And I'm not a, a, um, a lawyer myself, <clears throat> but I'd like to hear the Attorney General speak to the fact that this is a trap built into the Constitution which protects behaviors 
uh, when described as, as being part of as the religious, of yeah. religion. Josh, that's yeah, a really so interesting... What we have here, if I, if I may, I, I think I would be in support of, and I would rather see the, the abolishment of free exercise of religion because it protects <laughs> abhorrent behavior, including mm. those she's uh, describing. Yeah, well, Josh, that I, yeah, I'm not sure I'd go quite that far, but I think that's a really interesting idea, and it, it is an interesting context in which to consider this question, uh, Dana, what about the protections that uh, that religion and religious practice enjoys? Would you be brushing up against those in a legal sense if you did what you were talking about doing? Yeah, I, I honestly don't think so. I, In terms of the free exercise clause, I don't know that there uh, is any precedent or case law that I'm aware of um, that would allow for a clergy member to, um, in exercising, you know, any um, First Amendment or other um, uh, constitutional rights, uh, would dictate that a clergy member um, has to be able to have sexual relationships with a parishioner. Um, you know, we what we do when we look at the criminal sexual conduct statutes, there are a number of times where you're just absolutely not permitted to have sexual relationships with someone. And if I give some examples, if you are uh, a teacher uh, of, um, of somebody, even if they're of age, even if they're 16 or 17 or 18, you cannot have sexual relationships with that student. Sure. If you are a corrections officer and um, there are prisoners that um, are part of, of your job is to guard them. You cannot have sexual relationships with them. And so there's the understanding that some relationships are simply too coercive to be able to engage in those relationships without committing a crime. And all of those have been upheld by the courts. So I see this really as no different. Okay, Dana Nessel, Attorney General here in the state of Michigan. Really great to have you with us, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next month. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Mm-hmm. All right, up next, as part of the 2019 WDET Book Club, we're going to talk with longtime Flint reporter Ron Fonger about what is going on with the water crisis now and his work to uncover it. That is all in preview of our Saturday visit to Flint in the Flint Public Library at 10 a.m. to talk about the book What the Eyes Don't See by Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. We are encouraging folks from Detroit to make the trip with us to Flint to have that discussion. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.